Welcome back, Train to Live podcast. Number two, we got our special guest, Captain Rob Ramirez with us. How's it going, Rob? What's up, guys? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, guys. Looking forward well, to this for a long you. time. Couldn't be happier. Thank you for having us, man. It's a, it's a pleasure having you on. We look forward to uh, going in depth on a lot of stuff with you today. I look forward to it, too. Let's have a couple drinks and have a good time. Talk, talk shop. Hey, while we're at it, cheers. Oh, where's mine at? Here you go. Cheers, boys. All right. All right, Rob, I'm really glad to uh, have you on the podcast today, man. Been looking forward to this. Haven't seen you in a while in training or anything, so this is uh, this is one way to see your shining face, you know? Is it shiny? The lighting. Now, you, you need a little powder, but we'll work with that. It's no big deal. <laughs> hey, um, you too. a couple things. Let me give a shout-out before we start. Um uh, Longs, South Carolina, and Horry County. The uh, some of the guys that we talked to up there, uh, they had a building collapse today with one entrapped, one removed. Uh, South Philly had a building collapse, three-story building collapse, no injuries. And then um, Queen Creek had a construction accident, like a, like a barn or a, a shop under construction. So just going into my point there, that it's out there. It doesn't always have to be the big major collapse or, or whatever, but they're out there, you know what I mean, for all of us. So this is why this is good to talk about and see kind of how we'll handle it. and We'll go from there. Go ahead, Herb. Absolutely. All right. So, Rob, just uh, letting, the listeners, uh, letting the listeners know, give us a little uh, background about yourself. Well, my name's Rob Ramirez. I'm a captain with the city of Margate Fire Department. I've uh, been there um, starting my 18th year there, one year before that in another fire department down in South Florida. Um, I also work for uh, FEMA, Urban Search and Rescue, with Greg and myself and a couple of the other guys from your department and mine for with uh, South Florida Task Force 2, Urban Search and Rescue. Been there for going on 15 and a half years. I'm currently a rescue squad officer assigned to the red team, uh, basically run a company of rescue specialists, our technical rescue technicians. Um, effective August 1st, I'm going to become a rescue team manager. Uh, I was just advised this week and uh, took 15 years, so I'm looking forward to that new venture. Thank you. I've taught with you guys. Thank you, guys. I teach a lot. I've taught with both of you guys, so um, I feel at home with both of you guys. are excellent at what you do. Uh, no doubt masters of your craft, and, uh, and I couldn't be happier uh, or more humble to be here just talking with you guys talking shop hey we appreciate it thanks man hey you uh you earned that spot too man that's uh that's definitely got your name on it i appreciate that brother i'm looking forward to you taking your next step too hey make so sure, make sure you're nice to me though when we're when we're out on deployment <laughs> though hey so what we're gonna do man we're, we're just gonna make this like we're sitting around uh, the firehouse table, sitting at the sitting at the bar, having a couple beers, whatever. We're just gonna talk shop, get a, get a few things out that are uh, important to you, some of the things that are important to us, and uh, we're just gonna chime in on each other and just uh, feed off each other and, and let, let's have a good time. Looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. All right. I'll, I'll go with the um, I'll go with the uh, first question here. 
Um, I know this is kind of a big one though. This one's kind of like right next to you, right close to your heart. But um, what's the what is the difference between like your fast program that's pretty that near and dear to your heart against the firefighter survival techniques? Like um, and uh, what what's the difference between them and and what kind of uh, input and takeaway do the students get when when they come to this class? Awesome, man. Thanks for asking. So, Greg, uh, the, the Firefighter Advanced Survival Techniques program was started by myself and a couple other guys um, back in 2010. Uh, just to give you a little background on the program, uh, uh, we took a couple classes, survival classes, lackluster classes at different agencies, different locations, you know, some through the department, some through the IAFF, and uh, we identified a, a need for a more of encompassing, for lack of better words, uh, survival program for our members. Uh, survival is a firefighter's best friend, guys. Uh, I can't emphasize it enough. Uh, we're all in this business because at some level we love firemen. Or, uh, we all care for each other. We want to give back. I love everything about the fire department. I love members in the fire station. I love uh, hearing about their days and their lives. And if I can give any one of my members one gift to be the gift of survival, getting them home to their family in the morning when I'm not able to be there for them. You know, we talked about it earlier. You mentioned your, uh, the departments in the West Coast and up north in South Carolina. Um, having an incident today, that doesn't happen. One of these low-frequency incidents, but low-frequency incidents happen all the time. So things we understand as instructors and as guys that are passionate about this job that things that never happen happen all the time. So rather than running through a career and hoping that you're never that statistic, uh, I'd rather prepare my members. And, and, I, and early, early on in my career, I identified uh, firefighter survival to be something that I was passionate about. I've been lucky enough to teach it. Our program has been taught at conferences nationwide, all over the state of Florida. Uh, we we're trying to do the numbers the other day. We're somewhere around 1,200 members put through there. Uh, so, you know, 1,200 guys and then the multiplier. One guy tells another guy who tells another guy who tells another guy. So I tell, I tell our instructors all the time, we've saved a life or two and we're never going to find out about it. And, and that makes me feel great about what we do. Somewhere along the line, someone told someone, that saved the life. In fact, I'm going to just segue into a quick story. We were teaching at the, at the Orlando Fire Conference probably uh, three or four years ago. Uh, shortly after having just finished a survival program in the Ocala area, Marion County area, and we had uh, instructors in that program from, I want to say, Alachua County up there in the Gainesville area and ran into them in Orlando a couple months later. One of the members that was with us who ended up taking another class from us in Orlando pulled me aside and said, hey, dude, just want to give you a heads up. The class we took from you guys just two months ago, we were able to apply last week on a call and pull two victims out using the techniques, your survival techniques you taught us to pull each other out with. We applied it to a victim that had no clothes, you know, butt naked, unresponsive, covered in Crisco. Your classic, uh, how do I get this guy out of the house? without him slipping every 10 feet. And uh, you guys know it as instructors, that's the biggest reward we can take back, knowing Absolutely. that something one of us was able to put out there, shit that we didn't come up with, that someone taught us, and we're just the medium to make that connection with the next person that needs to learn it, um, turned on in a positive result like that. And that, that just feeds, that's fuel for the fire and feeds the soul, guys. You guys know that. Yeah, so, so, when, so when, you, when you hear, when you hear that, I mean, you know that if there's a couple days left in that class or whatever, you're you're you just got ramped up. You're doing it better than you've ever done before. Stoked. Yeah, Stoked. exactly. Stoked. You wake up with purpose and you're driven 
and you're freaking single task oriented and your meals don't matter. Yeah. Breaks don't matter. Extra cup and, of and coffee. You, and you and every day you get back to the hotel with a sore throat because you've been talking all day and your feet are swollen. But that's yeah. a good day at work. Yeah. That's, that's perfect. It. <clears throat> hey, so, so Rob, go, go into a little depth about what the actual fast program is. No, but let me turn off Siri. She's driving me crazy. All right. So the FAST program, um, again, so we identified the need. And thanks for bringing us back. We identified the need for it and then started coming up with a program. And again, there's guys that have done so much for this in the world of firefighter rescue, survival, psychology versus physiology, the Rick Georges of the world, the Bob Carpenters of the world, the Elvin Gonzalez retired from Miami-Dade, Mike Posner retired from Miami-Dade, uh, Basil Ibrahim from Orlando with his writ and Matt McGee, those guys took a little bit from everyone and always gave them credit for it. And, 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 you know, put together a program based on the stuff that we learned from them, stuff that we figured out on our own through repetition and learning and created a program that starts very simple. Uh, we cater to the members experience level and the program is not a program because I don't believe any program is guys, just to be honest with you, uh, a program provides us knowledge. You take a class with us, we're going to give you the knowledge. This is the way you build a shore. This is the way you throw a raker. You provide you the knowledge, but not the reps. You know, knowledge plus a thousand times equals skill. So you're never going to leave a program with a skill set. You're going to learn a new skill, which you're going to have to work on, on your own. And um, that program provides our members with... Um, the reality of a real survival situation, what to expect, what to anticipate. We teach them a lot about themselves, whether psychologically, physically, or their fitness levels. We, uh, we teach them how to overcome those walls that you hit, regardless of your level of training, whether you're a, a fresh boot out of the academy or you're in SEAL Team 6, you know, the triathlete. We all have walls that we hit individually. You know, all three of our walls are different. But as long as we learn what our triggers are, how we're getting to that wall, and how we're going to surpass, how we're going to get past that wall, to get ourselves on the other side of that bad situation, that's what we focus on. I do a lot of focusing on our FAST program, not only on the hard drive, you know, you know, your hands-on skills, but on those six inches of the gray matter between your ears. That's where survivability starts. Those six inches of the gray matter between ear and ear, that's your soft drive. So not only do we focus on the hard drive, but we focus a lot on the soft drive, understanding that our perception to our situation is going to change your biology. And your biology is going to affect your performance. And your performance is going to directly impact your survivability. Um, these are things that that we beat up on. We teach our members data-driven information. The entire program focuses on common denominators, based on NIOSH reports, based on uh, Don Abbott's uh, Mayday program, based on uh, firefighter rescue surveys. Um, any type of information that's out there, we're in it and capturing all this data and putting it together. And the numbers don't lie. RIT is effective about 6% of the time nationwide, 6%. Uh, Self-rescue is effective about 36% of the time. And every Mayday called from 2015 to 2020, coast to coast, border to border. So if we, get, we, if we send you a proficient RIT team, we're giving you 6%. Those guys, are, those guys are hardcore balls to the wall going in there to get you. They're softening the building. They're doing their 360. They're bringing the right tools. We have a 12 to 1 ratio to get you out based on the Phoenix study. None of us provide that type of staffing for a RIT team. We all know that. The arrogance of us thinking that we're gonna figure it out on the fly when one of our guys or girls is going down. 
we'll figure it out on the fly. No, we're not. We know that. We understand the reality of that. We talked to them about that. So we're going to send you a 6%. Then we're going to teach you 36%. So you're almost at 50% survivability. The rest is going to be the members that are with you in the building. All the, all the data has told us that the victims are rescued by their crew 26% of the time. Just the people that happen to be operating immediately around them when the mayday occurred or the, uh, or the uncontrollable fire behavior, unexpected thermal injury, whatever the situation was, catastrophic collapse, uh, separation from the hose line, whatever the situation was, we're going to provide you that 36% of survival. Hopefully you have a rich team that's going to give you 6%. And then the members around you, if you know iron sharpens iron and you're taking this back to the firehouse and spreading that knowledge and teaching and getting the reps in with your company, they're going to provide the other 26%. We're sitting somewhere around 65, 70%. My, my math may be off. I've been drinking some Crown. But we're going to get you out of that building. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's oh, yeah. what the program focuses on. Yeah, I, like, I, I definitely like how you were uh, hitting on the uh, the data. And, and and that's the problem. I mean, the, the culture is everybody wants to run right into the building. Everyone wants to grab the hose on and, and go in there and put the fire out. I mean, the three of us right here, We've all been on scene. That unit gets assigned writ, and they're over there cussing and just not taking it serious. So that mindset needs to change, and 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 that's stuff that company officers and and even the hydromen to to the second medic. That's a cultural change that that needs to happen, and and the importance of uh, actually giving them that data is crucial. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And um, we're kind of in that struggle right now. You know, we have the we have the RIT team. We're like, oh, man, we didn't beat the other rescue there in time. So the RIT team goes up front. They throw their RIT pack down. They put their hands in their pockets. Well, we're trying to make it a functional, active RIT team that goes around, that looks at survivable, you know, ways in, sizing the building up, assisting the outside truck company, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking at the same thing, kind of keep them active so they're in the fight. Another quick statistic for you guys is uh, – between 2015 and 2019, again, 5,000 maydays recorded, coast to coast, border to border. 40% of the maydays, almost half, happened before a RIT team was established by, by the incident command team. So these things are happening the first 10, 15 minutes of the fire. When we still don't have a full grasp of where the fire is, we haven't located it, conditions, time of night, lighting. Crews are still going to arrival, communications are not set up. Command's trying to figure out which way is up and down. 360s haven't been finished. And that's why it's so important for us as senior members, company officers, you know, to get our members, our junior members, our junior company officers to slow down, slow down, take in your environment, not in a 360, but in a 720, because dangers come from every direction, from around you, above you, and below you. How many guys fall into, into holes, step on live wires, uh, touch hot fences that have been electrified, have shit fall on them, getting out of the rig. So, you know, I understand all these things, and you guys understand them as well, but survivability starts at the firehouse before you ever pull that air brake and step foot on scene. And, and, and us as company officers and senior members, we need to beat up on that because, again, the best, give we, the best gift we can give our members is getting them home in the morning. I agree. You know, that, that pension's a beautiful thing. Let's get to it. True story. Absolutely, boys. Absolutely. Not, uh, to touch on that a little bit, it's uh, – I remember when I got in the fire service 17 years ago, the first day the Lieutenant goes, Hey, you're first fired. You're going to have blinders like this. He goes, it's going to take time to get those blinders to open up. But 
that that's a very old school mentality. We need to get those blinders off immediately. Mm-hmm. Those guys need to be seeing everything and they need to be exposed to it. They need to be able to look for it as well. For all of our survivability, for yours and mine. Absolutely. There, there may be a time where you're overwhelmed and that, that, that junior member who you just gave that opportunity to take the blinders off and speak freely when he needed to. And you've taught him what to look for. The volume, velocity, density, colors, building construction, bars, a 720, 360 plus 360, all the information you've dumped into this kid's head. So it may save your life one day. I agree. And I, and I think, um, I think uh, being a good leader and having a good delivery to him too, you know, back in, back in the olden days, it was kind of, you know, Hey kid, you'll figure it out when you get there, you know, and it's, it's not like that anymore. You know, it's so important that it really should be, it really should be uh, uh, creating those systems, creating that communication, uh, talking to these kids about survivability and getting them comfortable in their SCBA. Alan Brunicini, RIP, um, had the quote that he would say, uh, that air pack on your back is directly correlated to your survivability. So you need to know, you have to have intimate knowledge that SCBA. We do an entire day of nothing but SCBA in our fast class. I'm talking about every drill you can imagine, starting from level one, simple, in clean, plain, station uniform, lights on, to all the way at the end, level three, fully encapsulated. So we take away your dexterity, sight, smell, because you're on air, overheat your senses, provide some type of arousal, whether it's aroma through your nose or visual, auditory exclusion with sound, and now you're putting the SCBAs back together with an anxiety-driven heart rate, 150, 160, 170. And then you start exposing these kids and showing them how to get past that wall. Because at some point, I may hit mine at level two. You guys are studs. You may hit yours at level three. Somebody might hit at level one. That's okay. As seasoned instructors, we got to be able to cue onto those signs that they're hitting that wall and addressing the issue at that moment. Because that's a learning moment. No different than getting your puppy to pee on the carpet, uh, off the carpet and on the newspaper when you first get them. You got to catch them in the act in order to build that memory so that next time he sees it, now he's got the file in there and it's a home run. Uh, It's so important. It's so important to get that, to get that started early, I believe. And I'm from the same school you guys are, man. Uh, We were trained by guys and girls that came on in the seventies and eighties, you know, end of their career. They picked us up. Your fire department is historical, uh, very well documented old school fire department that I highly respect. Uh, mine, not so much. I'm, my department is 65 years old. But uh, we had a lot of dinosaurs from the volunteer days. And a lot of that culture stayed around in the Broward County area. Uh, it's so important that our generation, on our way out, leave this uh, culture of survivability and inclusion and humility as company officers and senior men to make sure that the junior members have a chance to make it through a 30-year career. Who are we you, to take um, that with us? You feel that uh, you feel that that's getting passed on pretty good, or do you really got to push hard and struggle at it? It's still a struggle. Yeah, it's still I agree. a struggle. It's now, still now, a struggle across the board. Now, now when you're saying uh, struggle, what what do you see as the biggest the biggest hurdle for you to get that 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 purpose out to the members? The struggle I find is that is that middle of the career member who's not comfortable in his skin yet. 
somewhere around the 10 year range where they're not, they're either a new company officer or an, or an aspiring company officer that's waiting to make that transition or just made that transition from buddy to boss where he feels like everyone below him or her is, is going to lose some form of respect or, um, or be some kind of threat to their future position or aspirations or their personal goals. So they start hoarding all this information and not skill because most of these guys and girls that have these issues, uh, they just collect classes. They take a class from you guys and never use it. Take a class from us and never use it. Go to a conference, take a class and never use it. But if you talk to them about it, oh yeah, I've done that before. But can you do it again? Fully encapsulated with a resting heart rate of 150 because of anxiety and every decision of the consequences which leads to life or death of you or a member? The answer is no. The answer is no. Not many of us can say that about any skill set that we have. See, I think it's the I think it's the three to five year guy that that I see a person three to five year firefighter yeah. because they've taken a few classes, they sampled some waters, they're actually starting to get pretty good at what they do. They're starting to fill the next lieutenant or driver position and all that. And now you can't really tell them anything <laughs> until they get that you know like oh man, what do I do? I need to call for help. And then once they get humbled, then they're a good company officer, driver, work their way up. That's my opinion on it. You agree with that, Herb? No, I, I totally agree. And I, uh, that, that goes Herb, with my- Herb's who I'm talking about, actually. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it actually goes, I was getting ready to bring it up, and then Greg hit on it as well, too, the humility part of it. The, the problem is right now we got company officers, guys who step up into company officers' uh, roles that – aren't okay with saying they don't know or they're not okay going out and training with the crew. If you're a company officer, you should be out there training with your crew all the time. And if not, it, it shows your, your crew that, Hey, he's not just saying it, he's doing it as well. So the three to five guy, the, 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 the 10 year guy, it, we literally can go up and down, the spectrum with it because you guys there there's 20 year guys that haven't done anything in their career. They're, they're happy riding tailboard and that that's what they're going to do for their whole career. They got on and, and that's it. So with that being said, what, what are some of the motivational ways that you found works going back to the firehouse, getting this information out to them and, and actually getting them to buy into the information? That's a good question. So, I'm going to just speak for myself again. Again, being very, very humble and very, uh, being very lucky. I have to be honest with you guys. I, I've been very lucky and blessed in my career where, where I've always found, and I'm sure you guys have as well, young guys and girls. I'm the old guy at my firehouse. Uh, I'm the old guy at my firehouse, believe it or not, at you know, 41 years old. I, I found guys and girls that really are ate up with the job just as much as I am. And, you know, first, uh, whatever the saying is, you know, birds of a feather, of a feather flock together. And if I mess that up, you can correct me. Um, are you guys still here? Yeah, we're here. Oh, I can't see you guys. There you go. I'm sorry. Thought I lost you guys for a second there. So I've been very fortunate. And the guys and girls that, that I work with at my firehouse and our bid, um, they want to be there. They're all laid up with the job. So leading them at times is a two-way street. They, there's days that I'm off and they lead me. And they don't even know they're leading me. There's days that I do things that I don't feel like doing. I show up to work exhausted. 
And and I'm like, all right, we got to train today because they expect that. Expectations, Herb, are a two-way street. You know, what are what does my boss expect from me? What do I expect from my members? Do they understand that with clarity? And what do my members expect from me? And I'm going to make sure that I meet their expectations, but they're also going to meet mine. And together, we're going to meet my bosses. And once you you establish that common ground and you create a system and you create buy-in, these guys and girls, you know, like Colin Powell says, they're going to follow you out of just curiosity. And they're going to expect that when you show up to work, they come up to me at 8 a.m. They're like, hey, what are we training on today, Cap? I used to show up at firehouses where they'd hide and talk about breakfast and movies and Netflix and 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 Nintendos and video games. And now you show up in the morning, they're like, hey, what do you want to train on today? And they're looking forward to it because they're all ate up. And that takes time. Uh, again, I've been very fortunate with the guys and girls that I work with because of our bid systems, where we have lifetime bids. So, you know, we keep our firehouses and our trucks until you promote or you retire. You can't get bumped out regardless of your junior, your 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 time and rank. And um, I've, I've ended up with a real good group of guys since I got back on the road two years ago. I was in training for the last five before that. And the guys and girls that I've ended up working with have just been a shot in the arm for me. They're all laid up. They bought in. So that's been good. But for the guys and girls that don't have that situation, uh, you know, getting buy-in from your members, getting that senior 20-year guy and telling him, listen, I understand that you don't want to train every day, but you got to give back to this firehouse. And you give back by empowering that senior member and letting him coach up a junior member. All these guys and girls want to leave something, whether it's their favorite recipe or the way he likes to pump a truck or she likes to, or the way she likes to drive to the hospital if she's in an ambulance. Uh, but let them give something back to the members and then us as company officers empower them and give them that position to handle the small things at the firehouse that our policies allow them to handle. I don't want to hear about problem X. Talk to so-and-so. And I'll use my driver, Dave. Have Dave, hey, talk to Dave. Find out what Dave wants to do. I know Dave's going to come back to me when they're not around. They don't know that. They but do now. Dave. They, they know that him. now, man. You gave the secret away. Yeah, you, you guys know Dave, Sexy Dave. Oh, Sexy Dave? Sexy Dave's my driver. Nice. He's, That's he's the most man. handsome man in America. Yeah, he is a beautiful man. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I want to stay. Uh, I want to stay on this um, motivating your crew for a second. So when we talk about and I'm, and I'm going to veer off a little bit, but it, it's all about you know because you're a boss. You're you're a boss on your fire department and you're a boss on the federal team. So when you go, when when you go from the boss of your department motivating your crews and all that to where you are getting deployed with the FEMA team. And we know that when you work a squad, you're about a six man crew and you may have a couple tech info guys or something with you. So you may potentially be in charge of about eight, maybe up to 10 guys with the medic. Uh, how do you, how do you get your mindset right? Especially if you haven't trained with these guys, like what's your, what's your go-to line or what's your secret to get those guys to get buy-in on short notice? And that's, that's a great question because it is so challenging, Greg. And you know, as well as I do, you've been there. Uh, these are fast moving events from the time that we get the phone call, the disaster happens, whether it's an earthquake or a hurricane, we're all watching the news, whatever news network you're watching, we're getting the information the same way the public's getting it. Plus whatever we're sharing on our FEMA lines. And then the deployment happens. You get activated, you're out the door. Real life stops for us, our families, wives, girlfriends, uh, husbands, children, their life keeps going, but our life stops. When I get to a federal deployment, I have to trust 
that the men and women that are there with me are the one percenters in their arena. It's not my firehouse anymore. And uh, at that point, my squad, and you again, you've, you've been there with me and you've been there on your own. Uh, we're, it's a structured system. FEMA runs such a centralized command system uh, where they're, we have every boss has a boss and expectations trickle down from the top to the bottom in, in an untimely fashion. So my greatest challenge is A, trusting people I've never trained with, keeping them safe from themselves, trusting that they are up to par with every mission that may come our way, whether it's a rope operation, a shoring operation, an extrication operation, a swift water operation, which we all know I ain't looking that, at doing. That's your specialty, I heard. I heard that's that your – I heard. That is absolutely not my specialty. And if there's any West Palm brothers and sisters watching that were in North Carolina with me, they can also uh, agree, uh, uh, Macaulay. And uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a good thing. Well, so far, the water's a great equalizer. But trusting these members that they know their jobs to, to, the, to that one percenter level and then watching them work and letting them prove me right. The biggest challenge I've had, and again, I'll echo what I said earlier, you've been there, is that things change constantly. Since we're taking our orders from FEMA, that federal level goes from the federal level to the IST team, to the incident management team, down to our task force leader, all through the chain till it gets down to us. And it may change four or five times a day. And keeping our members in that informational vacuum, motivated and in high morale, ready to work in some type of operational state of readiness, is the biggest challenge on long deployments. Work fixes everything. <laughs> work fixes everything. Absolutely. How many times have you guys been at the firehouse? I, listen, I'm going to be honest. I've been having that problem right now. And my guys, if they watch this, they'll tell you that Rob is right. Right now, my firehouse, we've been watching A and B shift get fires, get fires, get fires. And here we are, C shift, training, this, this, the third platoon, training and training and training and training and training. And I had my young guy tell me the other day, I got this brand new guy who just got the bid there, love him to death. How much practice are we going to need? <laughs> All we do is practice, 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 practice. And I'm like, we're going to keep practicing. A shift never practiced. They just got a fire. B shift had two fires this month. All we do is practice. Before we left the firehouse this morning, A shift got a fire. BS fire, lightning strike, attic. Out by the first you know, 10 gallons of water, put it out. But it sounded amazing when I went out the radio. And he was still there. And he looked over at me. We're going home. He's like, we just got off the truck. Next shift, we're going to practice again. Work fixes everything. I'm telling you, they get a fire next shift, a good working fire, and none of us want fires to happen to anyone. But we want to be the ones to be there when, if it does happen. That afterglow where everything went the way you wanted it to, kind of, and your members are soaking wet and exhausted, and you ran your horses, and they did good in the race, and they're loading up LDH and rolling up hose, and you're covered in soot, and we got to decon and get back to the firehouse. That after shower conversation or from bumper hot wash or, or debrief, what a sense of fulfillment for these guys when all that practice becomes perfect harmony. It validates everything that we do. It validates our investment. It validates their investment and their trust in us as company officers when you have a positive result. Same thing with youth are. And once we put these guys and girls to work, everything is harmony. 
it's leading to work that becomes hard for guys in leadership positions, as you well know. Correct. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I think it also uh, triggers the morale again, and I also think uh, like everybody just gets along. You know, hey, we had that little argument yesterday. Not anymore. Gone. We're done. Gone. Let's have Gone. some coffee and be done with it. Gone. Yeah, I love it's it. awesome. So true. So practice. true. How much that's a practice? that's a that's a typical new guy answer too, isn't it? He's like, well, what's what's going on here, Cap? How much practice do we need? Stretch that line eight times. Well, so to add to that. The um the firemen in my station, all the firefighters, they kind of came up with, hey, they came up to me as the captain. They're like, hey, let's try this new hose load. Yeah, sure, no problem. We pulled hose and pulled hose and pulled hose. Finally, I had to tell them, that, listen, man, I'm not pulling hose anymore. Like, <laughs> you guys are experts. I'm okay with being number two at this. And, and, and you know, I had one of my little moments where I was kind of like, listen, I don't pull hose. If I'm pulling hose, something's wrong. I'm doing a lap of the building. I'm doing whatever. The next two fires, I pulled hose as they were doing other items. So they, I never lived that one down. They were, they were poking and probing the entire time. I'm like, all right, touche. Foot in mouth. I won't let that happen again. You created that foothold, bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was worth it, though. Absolutely. Hey, so, Rob, what uh, you said you were on a uh, task force for how long? Um, I'm starting my 15th year, Task Force 2. And uh, so you got deployed over to Haiti, right? We did. We were, uh, we were in Haiti uh, We were in Haiti close to two weeks, and we were there uh, a day and a half after the earthquake. It was uh, the, the, probably the, the uh, up to this day, the, the most defining moment of, of my USAR career, where we were able to actually put everything to work, guys. Everything that we talk about, teach about, whether it's searching, whether it's breaking and breaching or shoring or confined space or rope or even extrication you guys name it we got to use all our trt disciplines for a two-week period in a country where there was unlimited work you could have started working at the at one city block in at 10 a.m and two 10 a.m's later you still be on that block doing cool trt shit it was badass but uh, it, it was a defining moment in my career. It was an eye-opener, uh, both spiritually and professionally. Uh, I can't even tell you my level of immaturity when I landed in that country. And the person that got there never left because I completely left a different person. And that's, that's a true story. There, um, there was, uh, you know, talking to the guys on the team after the fact, um, there, there was some uh, iconic and some heavy stuff that happened there that, that – uh, made eyes on our team for the most part. Uh, there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of good work done there by every team that was there. Uh, we, we shared the U S embassy with uh lost with the city of LA task force out of California, California one. And we shared the U S embassy uh, parking lot, not the building guys. We, we slept in the parking lot because uh, the building was unsafe secondary to the structural damage. We shared the parking lot with LA and with uh, Miami Dade Florida task force one. And those are pictures from my, our deployment there. Uh, any level, type, or uh, any any type of collapse you can imagine, uh, we saw in that on that deployment in that country. And every building seemed to be fully occupied, and everyone knew someone that was stuck in a building. And we our resources, if you can imagine, being overwhelmed and wanting to work 
And I can't even imagine. I was the rescue specialist at the time, so I was the TRT guy um, uh, uh, with, with a boss. I can't even imagine the stress that our bosses had trying to keep us working and motivated when our operational periods were 36 hours, 48 hours straight. And, and, and I can't, I'm not even going to sit here and lie to you guys. There comes, there came a point during the deployment where we probably went, uh, what felt like three to four days without getting any sleep. And I was never tired once. Never. It's just so much adrenaline never tired once we'd, we'd start working a pile and I'd watch the sun go up to my right and go down to my left and then back up to my right and then back down to my left and the days would go by and I felt like we were still on the same job in the same pile and there was no one complaining or thinking about sleep or showers or beds or anything but getting to those victims it was a it was a, I learned a lot about humanity I learned a lot about valor I learned a lot about uh, the human condition uh, watching the Haitian people try to rescue each other uh, watching their their desire to live we pulled people out of rubble six seven days later um, it was amazing we, we did field amputations with bone saws and saws with six TPI blades eight TPI blades uh, with nothing but ketamine and an IO to keep them asleep while we're doing it we're, we're you talk about getting real world experience uh, that was it. That was a two-week crash course in, in, in urban search and rescue at every level. And I applaud the men and women that went with us, especially our leadership for handling that at the time. But those guys, what a bag of shit they were handed. And they made roses out of it with a home run. I got a lot of stories about that trip. Those missions you talked about, Greg, um, my first time in my career that we ever had uh, that, that conversation where we sit there and talk to each other amongst our squads and have that heart to heart where, you know, we may not go home and we've come to that conclusion. We may not go home. We're all parents. So if, uh, if you don't go home, I'll talk to your kids and let them know you kicked ass and I'll talk to your wife and let her know you were awesome. If I don't go home, please do the same for me. Send this message back to Gavin. We had those conversations, uh, honest conversations on sidewalks in Haiti, in some town, in some street I've never been to. We had volunteer missions only where our leadership pulled us aside and told us there's people in that building. We know they're there. We got to breach through a couple more layers, 25 feet up, 25 feet across, on your hands and knees in a 20-inch hole. We got, we got a couple of uh, Hilti breakers in there. Go to work two at a time, work for 10 minutes. If it holds up, We'll pull you out, put 10 more people in there. But the structural engineers said this is a volunteer mission only. If we get an aftershock while you're in there, it's cancel Christmas. So we can't ask you to go in there, but you can volunteer if you want to. Because we got visual and audio contact with these people. We know they're there. We're not just shooting in the dark. We know the space is occupied by people that have survived. And uh, the group of us, the group of men and women that took those volunteer missions, and I'm not going to lie to you again, boys. I never thought that I would be that guy, but I ended up rolling with my guys just because my guys rolled and they made me brave. There's guys that went out the door with me that had skin in the game. I know their wives and kids. Uh, I work with them at the fire department. And when they sat next to me on that sidewalk after we got the operational go-ahead for the volunteer mission, we never spoke before. We got the offer. And afterwards, their only question to me was when we met on the sidewalk was, do you have enough water and eye protection? 
never asked me once, are you going? That wasn't even a question. Perfect. It was like, hey, you got enough water for the day? You got iPro? All right. I'll talk to so-and-so if you need some. And, and you, you get to the other side of that. You get back home to the comforts of home. You see your kids again. And you show up at the firehouse two weeks later and start running, you know, ass bleeds and back pains and with these guys. And it changes your, it changes your, uh, changes your view on life and how you look at them as men and women. Because everybody talks about it. But when you walk that talk, and you know who, who, you, who has your six for real, um, it, it changes relationships. And that's why I tell you guys, that deployment changed me um, spiritually and professionally. I left there with operational experiences I can never ask for um, in a training level. And uh, spiritually, I, I left a completely different person than I got there. I got there an immature, probably that was in 2010, so 10 years ago, an immature 31-year-old guy. And I, and I came back a, a grown man with a, with a new respect for life and humanity. So I don't want to turn this into a sob story, but no, maybe no. it did happen. No, 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 no I agree. Hey, uh, you know what? On that, I say we drink to uh, you guys that went over there in Task Force 2, man. That was pretty good. Cheers. Thank you, man. All right. Follow that act, Herb. You, you go back. Can you go back a picture? The, the one with the, the girl in the freezer? Do you have that there? Uh, give me one second. I just ambushed you with a curveball in the middle of your operation here. He'll handle it. Yeah, he's, he's got this. There's a picture there where um, the one with the girl in the freezer and then the one with the search cam. That has the girl in the search cam. And those are two quick stories about day one and day like 10. There we go. So the one on the left, the one on the left with the girl in the search cam, uh, we found... Uh, her the second or first day and a half at night in a collapsed school. Um, she was down there with another girl who's, who had to have a field amputation to get her out and, and multiple uh, uh, victims around them that were deceased, including her mother. Uh, they were there for hours before we got there, probably about two days. And this is the middle of the night sometime, probably around midnight. And, you know, the time time could be off. If, if some other Florida 2 members watch this video, I apologize. But it felt like midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And we were sitting there for hours, digging, digging, digging. Half the, half the team was working on that pile. I showed up as support on the back end of their operation. So I got to witness the back end of it and, and the extraction of the victim. So this girl in the video, uh, she ended up getting out of there, jumping into the back of a pickup truck, and she was gone after a day and a half. She gave us a high five. We gave her a water bottle, with a, and she was out of there. The other girl um, who was next to her, uh, her arm was pretty jammed up between a couple of slabs. She had pancake collapse of a three-story building. And her, and her arm was somewhere between a desk and the third floor. And she was somewhere in the second floor area. So when we got to her, we only had access to the, her feet. And the members that went in there and took care of that problem were able to, like, sedate her and get a bone saw in there. And like I told you guys earlier, um, the, with the use of, a, of, cutter, of, of, of cutters and a, a six or eight TPI blade and a sawzall, they were able to finish the job. You're talking about 2010, so tourniquets were not really the cat tourniquets that we carry today. So they were using a blood pressures as we were using blood pressures as uh, tourniquets and and other form of like primitive uh, tourniquet applications. Got her out, got her to a helicopter with the use with the use of uh, the of the UN and the Red Cross, and they flew her out to a Navy carrier offshore. And we got a cool video message from her at our boo, like two or three days later, 
where she uh, she said something in Creole to us. And she had her little stump wrapped up. And she was hydrated and clean with no concrete on her. And she couldn't be happier. She's still alive today. So that was that was like day one and a half. You talk about exhilarating, exhilaration and, and, and getting that, like you said earlier, that, that drive to just work through the next 48 hours. And that was a home run. Uh, the one on the right of the screen coming off the freezer there, that's actually a New York Task Force 1. Those are the FDNY guys. Uh, for some reason, we always team up with the FDNY. The Task Force 2 and the FDNY have a real good working relationship. So the FDNY, New York Task Force 1 and them, uh, Chief Downing at the time and all these guys, we all get together and work together on all these missions. They love hanging out with us. We just jive. Both teams get along real good. So that's the FDNY guys uh, receiving her. Those are uh, Florida Task Force 2 guys up top. This is actually our building, our operation. We invested about a six days into this building. And uh, we're working in this building. It's a Caribbean, Caribbean supermarket, which looks kind of like a, what you would look at as a Costco or a BJ's here in the States. It had furniture on one end, had groceries in the other, patio stuff. And this thing had a pancake collapsed. And she was stuck up there. When we finally got to this lady, she was on her knees in a cocoon of concrete, guys. Talking about 18 inches by like 18 inches on her knees. She couldn't get to her feet. She couldn't stand. She had low overhead, no, no clearance. She had her bag between her legs. Now, we were able to dig to, her, dig to her from the top, from above her, and dig to her from the bottom. She was somewhere in the middle. And if you can visualize this lady on her knees with her bag between her legs, and she told us, you know, um, she was prepared to do anything to get out of that situation. And she had seen the days she had a crack in the concrete where she could see the sun come in and the sun go away. And that's all she was using to track the days. That ray of light would give her daytime, go away nighttime. And she, that's the way she was counting the days. She knew she had been in there anywhere from five to six days at the time. When we finally reached there and we had interpreters with her, uh, with us, our interpreters went in there and we flew over there. I want to say we probably took four or five um, uh, Creole speakers uh, from, from different fire departments went with us. And our interpreters went in there and made contact with her and she responded in English and perfect English. And we're like, uh, you speak English? She's like, yes, I speak English. I'm American. So she's actually an American citizen that lives in the city of Pembroke Pines in Broward County, who was there visiting her family. And her sons were looking for her. They had been on Power 96, Y100, all the radio stations, trying to find their mom in Haiti because she, she lost her phone in the, during the collapse. They know that she had gone to get groceries for her family somewhere around 4 p.m. on the day of the earthquake. And um, we ended, ended up pulling an American citizen out of Haiti. And we've actually, uh, not recently, but to the years after, whether it was 11, 12, or 13, we would have like annual things as a team. And she would always come out with her kids and meet up with us for every event and, and tell us a story of how she was rescued. And the uh, funny part of that story is that the Florida two guys were above her. The FDN guys, FDNY guys were below her. And we're both digging to her at the same time. So we kind of reach her within like minutes of each other. So now we're trying to figure out how to get her out from between us, from the second floor. So just for shits and giggles, we'll call it FDN, FDNY floor one, her floor two victim, floor two guys, floor three. And we're talking to her from above and from below in English. So these guys are blown away. We haven't heard English in a, in a week. And uh, she keeps handing shit to the FDNY guy because she can reach her hand back and pass things to him. So he's like, what do you got up there, sweetheart? She goes, hold up, take my purse. Okay, take my Glock. She was carrying a Glock because she was shopping in, <laughs> in, in that part of the world. She needed a Glock. And she gives him her Glock. And then 
the Florida two guys start passing their tools down and dropping it in their hole, in her hole, so they can get in and do some work. She grabs a Hilti breaker and passes it down to the FDNY guy. And the FDNY guy grabs the breaker from her and says, hey, yo, sweetheart, you got anything else up there that's going to help us get you out? How much equipment you got? <laughs> He's like, he thought that she was passing him her breaker, her, her concrete saw, and she just kept <laughs> taking off Florida two shit and passing it down to the FDNY. And uh, we had a little, little moment of, uh, of you know, light, lighting the mood. It was funny. Uh, hard, a lot of hard work. Got her out. She got on the ship. She was gone home. And she was in the state. She lived, the happy, lived happily ever after. But that's a pretty cool story. Those two pictures brought up story. that memory. That is a good one. <clears throat> so you, um, you, you saying that uh, when you went there, you became back a different person. So it, uh, it changed you as a leader too, as well, right? Like you, you looked at things a little bit different when you came as a boss. At first, Greg, I gotta be honest. At first, it took time to adjust coming back. When I came back, those um, everyday calls that we run now—the alarms, the smells and bells, the back pains to take me to the hospital—those service calls that are so important that keep the fire department in South Florida in service. Um, really, were, were weighing very heavy on me. Cause who are you guys to call us and complain about this? When I just came from a place where everything is destroyed. And there's 250,000 dead people. And they're not complaining. They're happy that we're there. They're, they're, they're just happy to be alive. So when I came back home, and I'm probably going to look bad when somebody watches this, but, and, uh, but you know, I'm comfortable enough in my skin to, to be honest about it, and I'm not going to lie to you guys. I had a problem adjusting the first month or two and, and getting my, my legs back under me and, and uh, reassociating re myself to my job what it really was and being okay with running the calls again that we run here because for two weeks i was in a high adrenaline no sleep every action had an equal and opposite reaction that can result in death and when you're in that type of game for two weeks uh when you come back and everything is so easy and what felt like controlled and slow it was hard but fast forward 10 years it's made me appreciate life. It's made me appreciate my members. It's made me understand humanity better. It's made me have, have more empathy for the human condition, whether it's a medical call or a post-fire call. Uh, it really changed me as a leader, the patience, empathy, and, and, and more of an understanding of what it means to just hold somebody's hand in a time of need versus walking off, and, walking off the rig, having to be the guy in charge, the alpha male. And that, that peacocking is gone completely. Yeah, I can see that. Gone. You know, I got there a young, dumb company officer, and I left, you know, a broken but wiser one, you know? And it took years to figure that out. It's a great question. I like it, though, man. It's um, And thanks for being honest about it, too, because it's easy to come on these things and go, oh, yeah, you know, bang your chest and all that. But but you're not lying to us, bro. We know you. You know what yeah. I mean? I'm but not soapboxing. Yeah, I like it. What uh, so talk about being humble back in the job. Uh, just a little quick side note been a fireman 17 years. Don't want to say that I, I didn't per se care, but you just get caught up in that moment of going into structure fires and everything. Well, when when your house catches on fire and you lose everything you have, and 
the fire department took out a family photo of me and my daughter. Wow. It, it was literally the most humbling moment of my life. I literally sat there with the only thing I owned was a photo of me and my daughter that she, that she made me for father's day. And they took the time to take it off the wall, make sure it wasn't ruined. So it's, I definitely understand that, that just being humbled. Well, that's a, that's a little inaccurate because there was something else that was saved out of that house. True story. All right. Greg, Greg, Greg uh, saved a six pack out of the house for me. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was there when I was there when his house burned down and uh, we were telling him, I didn't burn it down. That's not what. <laughs> oh my God. Your house burned in the city of West Palm? No. no, no. I'm supposed to say that? I'm sorry. No, 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 no. no. It, it, uh, I'll, I'll literally give them a plug right now. The uh, city of Pompano firefighters, uh, their fire department went above and beyond. And I was on, uh, I was over on the West Coast teaching a class. I got, my phone was just blowing up from all my neighbors calling. And my house caught on fire. Wow. And Greg was teaching a class down in Miami. So he was staying at my house and he was there. Like he just pulled up when, when the fire, uh, the fire trucks were there and everything, but they, uh, they saved a photo that my daughter made for me. It was like on the wall. Wow. And the guy gave it to me. He was like, Hey, he's like, I got this for you. And, uh, it, it, it literally made me so much more humble in my job it made me think, all right, you know what? When I go in someone's house, I'm going to, I'm going to watch where I'm turning. I don't need to hit anything with my SCBA. I, I, I need to be a little bit more careful because they, it, it was the best feeling in the world. It, here you go. It, I understand it's a shitty situation, but guess what? I got this for you and it's, it's in my house right now. It's in my new house hanging up on the wall. So yeah, there, there, there was some there that's heavy though, that your house got, you know, burnt down and everything, but there was a lot of funny stories that came with that too. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of funny stories that came with it. I, I, I right. No, seriously. So I'm not going to say his name, but the other guy I was teaching with, we were both staying at his house and he got to his house before me and he called me and he was like, Hey man, he's like, Herb's house is burning down. And I was like, well, I was like, well, aren't you a fireman dude? do something. <laughs> his neighbor. That's horrible. Herbie, Herbie's neighbor. This is the best part. Herbie's neighbor across the street. Did she video him or no? Yeah, she, she yeah, she videoed him. <laughs> and you can see him in the video. He's running back and forth on his cell phone, calling me. And I'm sending him a voicemail because I'm in the middle of a class. Right. So I'm not taking it serious. I'm like, all right, whatever. Like, and then he's like, when he finally I answer the phone, he's like, Dude, I don't know what to do. Your house is burning down. <laughs> oh my god! I'm like, well, did you call nine one one? He's like, yeah, yeah, they're coming. Hangs up the phone. So it, it's yeah, it's a, it, it's one of those funny things. It, it happens. It sucks, but uh, that being humbled by the situation is huge. And uh, like I said, those men and women that responded in Pompano. Hats off to them. They oh, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I was there. Strong fire department. Well, I was there. uh, I was there. I got to talk to the company officer. I wish I remembered his name. I'd give him a plug. But uh, the company officer and his entire crew, they they were awesome. 
like yeah. everything they did in there. They let us go in like a little bit quicker because they knew we were firemen. They said, Hey, this is what we think. And, you know, they narrowed it down. They're real cool with Herb. They're real helpful. And, you know, that was that. Can't say enough about it. And that's the way I think those guys taught me a couple items too. Like, you know what? If they can do it to us, you know, they, they could have been ego banging on the chest type deal. If they can do it to us, then I need to do that too as well. Go in the other direction. And what a great lesson to bring back to your firehouse to your young guys. You know, I always tell my guys when we're overhauling, there's a fine, fine line between overhaul and vandalism. All right. Oh yeah. How much roof do we really need to take? How much of that truss do you need to expose? You know, how much wall do you need to take? Do you have to kick that coffee table over? Can you just gently move it out of the way? You know? Yeah. Do you have to rip the screens out or can you just take them out, lean them against the wall? You know, stuff right. like that. Exactly. I agree. I agree are we, completely. Are we, are we busting through that window high speed at 10 out of 10 to do a VES? Or am I just letting some smoke out after the fire? What's, you know, those are great lessons to take back to the firehouse. It's a good story, Herb. Sorry no, about your house. But I know you got a nice house now, so you're good. Well, I mean, uh, eventually one day you'll come up here and uh, hang out with us. Looking forward to it, bro. What well, um, so we're gonna we're gonna keep moving forward with uh, with talking, man. So, uh, like I said, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Thanks for having me. This is I'm having a blast. I feel like we're at the firehouse table for real. We just broke your balls about your house burning down. Yeah, hey. hey. <laughs> uh, so, so you gotta understand. One of my best friends is my partner. Yeah. He's right above you. Sorry There's about that. Hurt. My balls more than that guy. I promise you. So, so over here, right here, he's right here. You yes. don't believe, Rob? That's not true. You know that. You no, know I'm a on. sweetheart. Yeah, you're an acquired hey, so, taste, brother. <laughs> exactly. So before you came on, man, we were uh, Greg and I were sitting there talking about it, and uh, it's we we literally have been traveling with you and doing all this stuff for since about 2008, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I came across something that you might find a little funny. Oh, look at us. Who's better than us? That's me like 40 pounds ago. I was packing the muscle, all the heavy lifter back then. Yeah, but, I think I think you're I think you were like a big old bodybuilder. So that's what I'm going with. I'm going with bodybuilder right hey, now. Hey, so so it looks like I gained the, the weight that uh that you lost. <laughs> yeah, you did. Oh my god, look at you. But you look you no, know, you're a baby. And look at sexy Dave right in the middle, too. That's my driver. That's great. Yeah, it's crazy, man. So, so we were sitting there. We we're like, "Hey, man, it's uh it's th this journey has been has been awesome, man. It's uh it's been awesome to be able to cool. travel all over the United States, being able to teach, uh, and giving back to the military, giving back to the fire departments, the different USAR teams. What are what are some of the tips and tricks that that you've taken from other departments that that you went to? Herb, I got to be honest, man. Um, the more we've taught, the more we've learned. I've learned tenfold what I've taught, I feel like. Uh, the stuff that we've learned, whether it's been high speed from agencies that have a lot more equipment and toys than we do, or you know, the opportunities we've had to teach in, 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 uh, in South America and in the Caribbean and see the, the, the craftsmanship and the technician level that they're at where they do so much with so little, and they're so rope poor, but it makes them so rope wise. Yep. Like, I've learned so much from these guys. Uh, tips and tricks are basically what I've learned from departments and agencies that have almost nothing, and and they can tie they can they can tie a rope ten different ways. They don't need carabiners or pulleys. 
They're creating mechanical advantage systems with one piece of rope, anchors with the one piece of rope. I mean, they're doing uh, multiple anchor points with one piece of rope. I mean, they're they're ridiculously innovative, and I've seen departments uh, use uh, a come along strap and a four by four and cutting it down on scene with rocks to create strut systems for vehicles on their sides or capturing loads. You talk about innovation. If anything I've learned, aside from the relationships, we've built amazing relationships everywhere in the country. And I, and again, I, you know, part of our opener was that we're in this business because we love firemen at one, at one level or the other. We're all laid up with the job. I, I'll sit around and talk to firemen all day. And uh, by firemen, it's not gender specific. Uh, but I talk to these guys and girls all day. Uh, the relationships that we've built, traveling, and the things that we've learned from departments that have all the toys, and especially from departments that have no toys at all, where you show up and I'm like, how am I going to teach this class with this one rope bag for 35 people? And the guy sits there and ties 10 different systems for you out of that one rope bag that you're like, holy shit, that will work. And I would have never done that because I don't have the necessity to do it. And, you know, necessity is the mother of, you know, invention and creativity. So, uh, honestly, just besides uh, relationships, I believe that picture you put up there with an Indiana and Muscatatuck, uh, relationships and learning the skill and knowledge and wisdom that these other agencies have, have made me a, a more well-rounded uh, operator. And, and I've learned more than I've ever taught. I gotta be honest with you guys. Every class we teach, whether it's an engine company class, a survival class, or a RIT program, a simple extrication class, you know, why? Why won't it work? My way is not the right way. My way is a way. It's a lot of gray and shady that falls within FPA and NFPA regulations that work. If the systems hold, I'm good with it. Let's watch it and see it happen, and let's let's try it out. And every time I've Showing up to a class with that type of open mindset, I've walked away learning so much from people that have so little, and, and I really do enjoy and do and do enjoy uh, teaching those classes for those departments that don't have that, you know, that big budget that other agencies may have. Uh, that's yeah. my takeaway from teaching around the country. Yeah, no, I mean it's. Uh, I tell I tell the everybody that'll listen. I, I tell them the same thing. I go, we are so fortunate to have every single tool that you possibly can dream of on your truck. You go to some of these small volunteer companies, you go to some of these up North companies that don't have a budget and you go to in the third world countries that don't have anything. Yeah. You go there and they're making do with what they have. So you can't say, well, I'm not going to teach that class. So as instructors, we stand back. We, okay, you know what? Give me five minutes. We're, we're, we're going to redo this and, and we're coming back to the table, but now we're going to build off of what you have. We're going to take away from what you showed us, but we're also going to give you some tips and tricks to help you guys out as well, to make your job a little bit easier and a, and a lot more safer. It's a two way street. Yep. Two way street. It's amazing. And, and, I love the way that works. And those guys with that innovation too, if you give them one piece of technology, one advanced, you know, tool, they turn it into something you're like, man, I've been using that tool for two years or that piece of equipment. And I never thought about doing that, but they're using their innovation with the new technology as well. And that's where you start to learn and you start to see it unfold. 
you're like, you know what? I'm bringing that back to my department as well. That's good. I just, it just popped into my head. I was in Puerto Rico years ago, probably 10 years ago and doing an extrication class in a junkyard and somewhere in the central part of the Island. And I had a guy, a technician down there challenge me on cutting an, an A post. So the, you know, for the guys and girls who don't know what that is the front post of the vehicle immediately around the, around the windshield that travels the door length down to the rocker panel. So I'm like, okay, how you, I'm going to cut mine with a Sawzall, a battery operated the walls and, you know, with a, you know, 16 TPI blade, 18 TPI blade. And he cut his with a leaf spring that was cut down to about this big and one end sharpened and a tiny handheld sledgehammer mallet type looking thing that he created. And he put it on that A post and beat it feverishly at like a thousand blows per minute. It looked like it <laughs> sounded like while I sat there with my sawzall and I kid you not, I cut through that post and two seconds later, he cut through that post with a sharpened leaf spring and a sledgehammer. He cut through an A post because that's he needed had. to, because that's what they had. They had never used my sawzall before that we flew in, we flew in with. And um, just stuff like that, that you walk away from and you feel so appreciative for what you have, yet so humble because... And, and, and you know what? Reinvigorated because these guys love the job just as much as you do. And look what they're doing to rescue and to provide and to improve the human condition. Yep. Look what they're going through and what they're willing to learn and give and prepare for. Where I got to show up, open a toolbox and hope the shit before me checked it and get it started. On my battery, hey, I got two. I got a green light on my battery. This the wall's good to go with a Diablo blade <laughs> or a torch. You know, torch is nice. very expensive. Yeah, we, we, with that money you guys got down there on the extrication team and all that, that's nothing. What, did you say national champs? I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, so, hey, uh, I, I, I know that you were one of the first arriving units on a massacre that just happened not too long ago. Um, I kind of want to bring that up and uh, I don't want to take the, I don't want to make the, the podcast dark or anything like that by any means, but no, it's educational. It's uh, this is one of those, those situations that guys may never respond to. And I know for a fact that you, you have a son, mm-hmm. you love him more than life itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't want that to happen to nobody. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, but that being said, kind of, Kind of run us through being a company officer and what was exactly. going through your mindset. Uh, all right, so get, 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 getting that tone out. All right, so uh, just to give you uh, give the listeners and the viewers a, a a kind of picture of how that happened. So the city of Coral Springs Parkland uh, sits adjacent to us, just west and northwest of us. It's our sister city. We do our training together. We uh, we we at the time. We, have, we, we, we had a combined training division the whole time that I was assigned to the training bureau. I worked out of the Coral Springs Fire Academy. And I, I shared a desk there with the Coral Springs training officer and myself. So it's two different agencies, but it kind of wasn't uh, in, in the eyes of the members and the operators. Just because there is uh, the lines are so blurred, there isn't a sandbox issue where this is my sandbox, that's your sandbox. Uh, so in my truck, I keep a radio 
on the council on the center council on Coral Springs dispatch because the rest of us in Broward County are on a Broward County, you know, Broward Sheriff's Office dispatch. Um, Coral Springs has maintained their own dispatch throughout the process. So anytime that that they catch a fire, any or they have a call in our area, um, they dispatch our trucks with automatic aid. Or and not mutual, but automatic. If they're in the in the they run along the border of the two cities, we're for the closest unit response. So um, I was out, I was out shopping, guys. Now that I laid the, the like the the geographical uh, parameters for this call, we were out shopping, getting our groceries for the day. You know, we had ran lake. We had done some training in the morning. Uh, I'll never forget. Uh, we were trained uh, at the firehouse. Uh, went over a classic a ladder hinge, getting a victim off an elevated platform using a ground ladder and a stokes basket with some rope and an MPD to capture progress. So we had just done that with the company, took a bunch of pictures, had a great morning, you know, practice, practice, practice. And uh, that ran us a little bit late for lunch and dinner. So we were all catching the dinner and lunch at the local Winn-Dixie because Publix was too expensive that day. We couldn't find any good deals. <laughs> and uh, I heard a shooting come in at the school. And I looked over at the driver and I told him, hey, Steve, what's the world coming to? Kids are shooting each other in Parkland. We got rich kids shooting at each other. You know, and I don't mean to, uh, you know, stereotype, but it was just a funny joke. And again, again, and I told you guys I'm going to come on here and be honest. So we looked over at each other and we thought it was a joke and very sad. And what's the world coming to? We both have kids. His kids were in high school at the time. And we had that quick conversation as two dads in a fire truck where that's unfortunate. Uh, but we're going to go about our day. That's the world that we live in now. And uh, before we left the parking lot, uh, that shooting turned into another shooting. Got into multiple calls for shooting, so I turned the radio up and started listening to the dispatch. Uh, Coral Springs units were showing up on scene. And I can tell by the sound of their voices on the radio that the scene they were at was not a normal scene. It wasn't your shooting scene that you would expect. And the dispatch came on the air and got my attention by saying that I can hear shooting in the background, what sounds like fireworks. And the, and the students were saying that there's someone shooting in the building. Once he said that, we started relocating north uh, with my truck. Uh, so and I started heading north to the Parkland area in hopes that we would get dispatched to this call. Uh, by the time that we got to somewhere around five to six minutes out, no lights or sirens, uh, we got put on the call. Jumped on the Sawgrass Expressway, which is uh, connects our two cities, went one exit west of the exit that we got on on, on one exit west of the on-ramp that we had gotten on on, and got off on what became the ground zero. Based on the information that I had, I went to the corner of Holmberg and Pine. And that's where, where I responded to with our, uh, I was, that day I was assigned to our, our Quint, which is a modern day fire service vehicle. Some days we're an engine, some days we're a truck. Most <laughs> days we operate as an ambulance. Um, so we pulled up to the corner of Holmberg and Pine. The first communication I received from the members of Coral Springs was move that fire truck off this intersection, you're parked at the casualty collection point. Now, to give you a little background before I move through the story, you're looking at the corner of Pine and Holmberg in this picture here. 
So I pulled up right around where that second rescue is, um, right on the other side of Rescue 80. So I parked a big ladder truck there. And they told me, get away from this corner because this corner is a casualty collection point. We need ambulances only. Uh, digressing, I was assigned to training for five years prior to this. This happened February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2018. I had been back on the road from January 10th. So this is a month into me being back on the road as a company officer after being off a rig for five years. I, during that five-year period, I had become heavily involved in the Broward County active shooter policy, which later became the Broward, later on became the Broward County active killer policy. And we started diving deep into rescue task forces, diving deep into unified incident command systems, expanding uh, you know, ICS 300 and ICS 400, and getting really, really deep into those operations. Understanding terminology such as, you know, your hot, warm, and cold zones, your casualty collection points, um, uh, getting our police officers in, the, in the, my police department, our neighboring police department, the city of Coral Springs Police Department to work with our firefighters. And this all became created policies uh, for the county. Uh, it was a four or five year endeavor leading to this day. I felt extremely ready for this event uh, from an operational level. I knew what needed to be done just because we had we had, had so many reps. Myself, especially uh, because I'm not tooting my own horn, guys, but I was teaching it every day. So the crews would come out and the crews would leave and I had to do the next crew and then the next crew and then the next crew. And I was doing this 40 hours a week for months on end, you know, with over 400 members, with police departments, I was doing roll call for the police department in the morning, roll call for the police department in the evening, getting them to work at our firehouses with our guys, teaching the police officers how to create these task forces. So to tell you that I wasn't ready, I'd be lying. I was mentally and intellectually ready. I knew the steps that needed to be take, taken. I understood the benchmarks that needed to be hit. But everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. So uh, if... It was like no scene that we've ever been to in 19 years, you know, whatever it was, 16 years at the time, 17 years. I stepped out of the rig and just to paint a picture for you two guys, you guys are my friends. I stepped out of the rig and this is just my POV. Uh, I told you I got yelled at the radio, move your truck out of here, but I felt like I needed to get off there. Mistake number one. Hey guys, take the truck around the corner. Where do I park it? Out of here. That was my answer to my driver because I didn't know the area and it was chaotic. There was kids running at us in every direction and high tempo, high energy, lots of gore. And I didn't know where to park the fire truck. I just know I couldn't leave it there because they told me I couldn't leave it there. So I told them, get it out of here and come back to me. So I trust them. They took the fire truck. That's the last time I saw them for two hours. So I ended up without my crew at the casualty collection point. So at the casualty collection point, it was golf cart after school golf cart showing up with um, with children and victims injured. Um, small bodies, high caliber rifle, traumatic, crazy bleeding and injuries. Uh, and they were 
Most of them were laid out in the back seat of the golf carts. Those golf carts were you sit in the back facing away from the golf cart, the long bench in the back, and then the bench in the front facing forward. So most golf carts had an, an officer driving, an officer holding a body in the back and holding onto the roof of the golf cart, standing on the back step. And that's the way they kept getting to us. And um, it was just a wave, one after another, after another, after another. The first, what felt like 10 rescues were immediately absorbed. First 10 rescues were there and gone in what felt to me like seconds. It was probably minutes, but it felt so fast. They were there and they were gone. I remember our rest, one of our rescues showing up, Rescue 58, a young crew, a young crew. I had trained all of them. Every single member in that truck had been in one of my last three hiring classes while I was assigned to recruit development and new hires as a training guy. So they had been hired within those first, my last four or five years, all three members on that truck. And they showed up and they got two shooting victims, one critical, all pediatric, multiple gunshot wounds to the torso, sprayed on one side or the other. I can't remember what side it was. Uh, another victim shot in the hand, shot in the foot, amputated fingers, uh, running out of stretchers quick. None of the plans that we had in place were developing fast enough for me, in my mind, in that moment. But there was a system in place, and Coral Springs was doing a bang-up job keeping that system in place. Command was doing the best they could. The division in charge of uh, Casualty Collection Point was killing it, uh, providing guidance, giving direction, and the police officers just flooding in from every angle. And the worst part about it, guys, was that it was get-off time. And all the parents were there to pick up their kids while this is happening. So now the parents are being held outside. They're trying to run in. The police officers are trying to set up a perimeter run in. The shooter's still in the building at this point. We have no ballistic protection. Uh, we know the building is somewhere in front of us. The shooter's somewhere in front of us. The, the radio's telling us to take cover and seek shelter. And we got kids coming at us from every direction. Uh, the energy was different. The sights and sounds were different. Uh, but again, we fall right into that mode where there's a job to be done. And we'll deal with our emotions later. Because we got to complete task A, B, and C. That day, A, A through Z. And uh, the trucks kept flooding and coming in before we were setting up a, a level two staging away from the scene. People kept coming in just like me, right to the scene, because the roads were still open at the time. And uh, I remember clearly one of the chief officers turned to me initially and told me, we're out of stretchers. We got to get these kids on stretchers. Go into that rescue and get me a stretcher. And I walked into the stretcher and found the deceased pediatric victim in the back. And that was my, this is real moment. My that, That's my personal, this is real moment. Because I had seen kids getting brought out and taken to an ambulance and gone. Brought out, taken to an ambulance and gone. And I'm trying to help and waiting for my crew. And then they're like, all right, go to that truck and grab me a stretcher because these two kids on the ground need to get on the next rescue that gets here. We're depleting our trucks. We're like 10 trucks gone already. And I walked into the back of that bus, opened the door, and unexpectedly was face-to-face -face with a deceased child. And that was my moment where I stopped saw it, focused on the injuries for some reason, and thought to myself, okay, this is the real deal. Take a breath, because all we can control is our breathing when shit sucks. 
took a breath, walked back outside, and told them that stretch was occupied. They said, bring it to me anyways. And I had to do what I had to do to bring it to them anyways. Okay? Uh, shortly after that, I found myself in the back of an SUV with no ballistic protection, uh, riding in the hatchback area with pockets full of tourniquets and chest seals and two chief officers from the city of Coral Springs doing everything we could to get into the building to find a child that law enforcement was saying needed medical uh, evacuation. On our second or third attempt to penetrate, we got really close to the building over curbs and medians and teacher faculty parking. And uh, a communication came over the air that said, seek shelter, the shooters in the second floor trying to shoot out a window. And the chief officers jumped out of the passenger driver's seat, went around my right, which was the passenger side of the SUV, and laid under the tires. And I couldn't open the hatchback of the vehicle from the inside. And I couldn't get to the front door. I knocked on the glass. They looked up. I said, open the trunk. And they let me out. And I laid on the concrete with them. And while I was laying in the concrete with them, this is a story that I've never told outside of very select people. One of the chief officers on scene had a bulletproof vest on, given to him by Petey. I watched him take that bulletproof vest off and throw it in the passenger seat. And the other chief officer turned to him and said, so-and-so, why did you just take your vest off? And he said, because my men don't have vest on and I'm not wearing a vest. That's a police vest. I took that moment as a learning moment for myself. You talk about leadership under fire, literally. Now, hindsight being 2020, guys, the report came out. The kid was already gone. They were watching closed circuit camera video that was 10 minutes old. But at that time, in that perception, it was real time for us. We didn't have that information. We were playing with the information we had. But I watched that chief officer do that. And to this day, I highly respect him for it. Uh, we ended up leaving there unsuccessfully, unfortunately, came out, kept treating kids, uh, stayed at that intersection till about 9 p.m. From 2.30 p.m. to about 9 p.m., I stayed at that intersection, ate dinner at that intersection. They came out and provided us barbecue on a bloody intersection. And I probably couldn't smell barbecue for six months after that without having vivid thoughts of that day and uh, we left there uh, did an after action at an auditorium with over a hundred first responders that went to like midnight and when i walked into the firehouse at midnight with dinner still in the back of the, of the fire truck uh the first thing i saw walking into the firehouse I look to my left, you walk into the day room, the TV's to your left over the recliners, was uh, President Donald Trump talking about the shooting that I just responded to. And that was another layer of holy shit. That's the President of the United States talking about the call that we just cleared. Because you don't have an idea when you're that deep in it, how many people know about it. And, uh, and that went on for what it felt like what felt like days on days on end until eventually the media stopped covering it and, and we were able to go back to normal life. But yeah, that was my Parkland experience. And, uh, and again, another one of those career moments where shit that never happens 
happens all the time, and you're the one it happens to. And uh, you learn from it, and you move on. Again, learned a lot about humanity, valor, and I have a, uh, and, and found a new respect for the men and women of that organization and the people that responded to us that day. Um, they, they all kicked ass, and, and lives were saved that day. You know, lives were saved. And hey, those Rob. 17, those 17 angels, RIP. So um, just to add to that, so like the next the next shift or the next time you saw that crew you were with, like how did that go down? I mean, it's not business as usual. It's like we got to we got to air our chi- we got to air something out here, you know. How no, uh, we did. you know we did all our family knew about it. Um my girlfriend at the time was trying to find me all day. Um they're watching the news. They know where we are. We're not answering our phones. Uh it was chaotic. But the that night we stayed up all night. Coffee conversations. Peer supporter therapist, IFF dispatch a team to every firehouse. Um, guys from your department, guys from Palm Beach County, guys from as far as Orlando came down um, that night. And they were they stayed at our firehouse with us, so they talked to every member. The following morning, uh, every single member that responded from my shift that day, which was I think 21 of us, uh, ended up at Top Golf at 8 a.m. And we had breakfast at Top Golf, watched the news at Top Golf because that's all that was on the news the next day, and uh, talked about it. Had a couple of beers. I know it's not the best to do at that moment. If you talk to any therapist, that's the last thing they want you to do. But we needed to get it off our chest and talk, and let the younger members know that it was okay talking, and and remind ourselves, the senior guys, that it was okay talking. Uh, and we talked about it. Uh, took a bunch of pictures, played some golf, you know, and. Uh, for weeks on end, it felt like every shift you come to work, there's a different therapist in the firehouse. Some some type of animal to pet. <laughs> it was always some type of animal to pet. We had more. I saw more golden retrievers and uh, fluffy animals over the next two three months than I'd ever seen in my life. Every day we had a therapy animal at the firehouse, and they work. Don't don't sleep on that. They do work. Nothing yeah. makes a fire a tough old salty fireman softer than a big giant golden retriever laying on his lap at noon <laughs> at the firehouse. But, uh, yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. We ended up going to a lot of the services for the kids. And uh, and every year we get together. The last two years we've gotten together on Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day is never going to be the same. But uh, every year we get together on Valentine's Day. And we do something. All the guys that were there that day. And, you know, informally and formally. We do one thing at the school in the morning. The school's been really good about doing that for us. We do a breakfast at the school for everyone that responded, police and fire. It's over 150, 200 people there. And then uh, we get together every every year and do something as a group just to continue talking about it. Because it was one of those calls, guys, that, that, that aren't supposed to happen. You know, they aren't supposed to happen to you. That's stuff we read about. That's never going to happen. Okay, cool. It happened. Now you got to deal with it. Right. You know. Yeah, that was, right. that, that was about it, Herb. No, man, it's uh, it's being traveling all over the place, and you've heard it numerous times. Greg's heard it numerous times. The the one thing I hate hearing from the guys is, yeah, this will never happen here. Oh, we work at a slow department. It's never going to happen here. Well, newsflash, there, there's an opportunity to happen everywhere. 
And that's the mindset that guys need to get in. And uh, it's that mindset of we're training for the possibility of it happening. And you got to be ready for it. And it, I guarantee you that morning when you woke up, that was the furthest thing on your mind. I, I, I promise you that. 100%. And I, I guarantee you it was the furthest thing on everybody's mind there. A, any first responder, the kids that were there, everything, it, it was the furthest on their mind. So getting in that mindset of we don't fight fire, we don't extricate, we, we're not going to a mass shooting, There, there's the huge possibility that it's going to happen. Absolutely. I, I mean, this world is going to hell in a handbasket quick. And you better be ready to handle it because we are the answer. When they call, it's PD and FD that's going to handle, handle the situations. Well, and, that, and, and that's true on a couple of different uh, angles, too. It's not just the big shooting or medical call. It's, it's the special ops, the day-to-day fire where it's like, ah, oh, it's just a bread and butter fire. You forget to do something. Even the medical call these days, you know. Someone someone hopped up on some kind of new narcotic that they're making out there and they go nuts on you. One of your guys gets clocked or, or something along that lines. You just you got to be aware. But the main thing is they're they're going to the cops and the firemen to figure it out. Like it used to be fire and first responder. Now, I mean, it's everything across the board that we do. So we got to stay on our game, you know, and we got to find our niche, our specialty, share it, have those guys find their niche, share with us. So we're all on the same page. And I think that's a big beauty of like us going around teaching and then being on the federal team as well. Doing that's the same thing. You meet guys that have that niche that, you know, you can lean on a little bit, especially as a boss, especially as a coworker. And I think that helps a lot. Absolutely, man. I have a sticker. If, If you sit on my seat in the fire truck, my computer sits in front of me with that, my MDT and all my information. On the bottom of it, we keep a big sticker on there that says, no one is coming. It's up to us. So you got to figure it out. We're an all-hazard response agency. We're there to treat the human condition, and we're there to treat, treat the mass shooting. We're there to treat the UFO that lands on 441, <laughs> and we're there to treat, they take the ducks out of the drain. No one else is coming. It's up to us, boys. Yeah, my favorite is always uh... – I always tell uh, tell my crew, I'm like, one day it's going to happen. It's going to be a submarine into a building, but we're going to be ready. Like, we're going to make sure of it. With practice. Yeah. Hey, hey so Rob, we're, we're going to wrap this up. But awesome. uh, I got one thing to ask you. In 19 years in the fire service, with the, the young guy listening and the old guy listening right now, what's uh, give them some advice. What, 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 what is, what is something that, that one year, two year, three year guy that's sitting here listening right now, what is something that you want to just give them that, that you wish was given to you? It's okay not to know for the new guys. Let's focus on the new guys right now. And the guys and girls coming into the job, you know, uh, it's okay not to know everything. Don't pretend. We don't expect you to know anything. Take those first five, six years and be selfish. When I, when I say be selfish, it doesn't mean uh, stop giving back to the fire service or make it about you because it's always going to be about them. We show up to work for them, them being the constituents and the citizens that we serve. 
that's the oath that we all took. It's the reason we took this gig, because we 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 love this gig because we love helping people. We dig it. Um, so, but be selfish. Invest in yourself. Maintain a blue collar mentality. This is a craft. This is a vocation. This is not a job. Don't ever let it become a job. Not not once. Don't ever let it become a job. Take ownership in everything in your firehouse. That's your salt. That's your axe. That's your kitchen. That's your coffee pot. That's your truck. Everything in that firehouse belongs to you for 24 hours. And if you show up on an off day and something's wrong, it's still yours to fix. Don't walk by something you can fix and leave it not fixed. Honor those that came before you by leaving it better than you found it, guys. I know it's cheesy. We all say it. Um, but it's so true. I, I see old pictures from my fire department. And, and, and I look at the passion those guys had. I, I focus on their strengths, not their weaknesses. I don't sit there and bash them for what they didn't have. I focus on their passion and, their, and how lucky I am to be a part of something they created. And what am I leaving for the next guy? So these new guys, when they come in and they replace us, think about the process. Enjoy the process. Take your time. Be a fireman. Get off this rat race to promote. The first bugle is the hardest bugle, but you'll know when you're there. All right? Don't go out there and just try to get a bugle without learning to be a fireman first. The best officers were excellent firemen. Uh, and then after you're a lieutenant, then focus on becoming the best lieutenant you can. Then focus on becoming a captain. Uh, it, it took me 17 years to become a captain. And, and I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of that. I took my time. And I know that I didn't skip any steps. And I went around the block to cross the street. But I'm okay because I got the reps in. Whether it was real life or in training. Guess what? My brain, and if you want to get scientific, my hypothalamus and my, uh, uh, they, it doesn't, it can't tell the difference. My, my, it, it cannot tell the difference between a training rep and a real life experience. I'm creating RPDM, rapid recognition, prime decision making, either way. And I'm getting that slide and putting it in my slideshow and my tactical toolbox, whether it's in training or in real life. So tell these kids to slow down, maintain balance between their family and their personal life and their profession. A lot of us struggle with that, myself included. You know, a lot of us got to where we are in our careers, whether it's locally or nationally, by, by sacrificing certain parts of our lives, whether it was you know, fatherhood, or being a partner or a boyfriend or a husband. We sacrifice a lot for this profession because we love it and we're so passionate about this calling that we have. Um, but let's teach our younger generation to have balance. It's gonna make for a better company officer, somebody more, somebody wiser, someone with more wisdom to give back to his junior members when he's a senior man. Honor the senior man, learn the craft, learn the tools, take time to season, Get off the rat race in the hurry to get promoted. Don't walk by shit you can fix without fixing it. And listen twice as much as you talk. The more you listen, the more you're learning. You're learning your way, what you already know, and someone else's way. If you're talking, you just listen to yourself talk. And don't pretend. It's okay not to know. None of us here expect a two-year guy to know what a 10-year guy does. None of us here expect a five-year guy to know what a 15-year guy knows. So it's okay to be a five-year guy. But it's only okay if we make it okay. If we create a culture and an environment where we eat our own, 
and it's not okay for a five-year guy or girl to be a five-year guy or girl, then it's never going to be okay for them to be that person. Because we live in a world where we set the culture and we set the expectations. And we can't create a culture that eats our own because default aggressive and valor without systems and culture, shit's going to end up bad. And if it doesn't, it's just straight luck that it doesn't. And it's up to us to make sure that that doesn't happen. We're the, we're the, we're the guardians of our craft and the gatekeepers. That's why I love the training division. I was in, I, I love the training division so much because I felt like the gatekeeper. Like, you got to earn a place in our club. You know, you're not here for the jacket. You're here for the full ride. This is not a, it's not a members only jacket I'm going to give you. You're going to show up and be part of this club. You're going to get a jacket, but you're going to earn it. And then you're going to have to work every day to keep it. Cause we'll pull that shit right back. Oh, so this shit's not for everybody. And if I that agree. offends anyone, I'm sorry. Hey, That's the truth. That is a true statement, man. It's a, uh... Greg, Greg and I always sit there and we, we always joke about it. Uh, this shit is more than a sticker in a, in a t-shirt. 100%. It's, uh, we, we, we've seen it and it's in every, every culture, every job, career, it doesn't matter. There's a sticker in the t-shirt wearing individuals. And uh, this is more than that. And you need to sit there and take a step back. And, uh, I tell my guys all the time, you, you got two options in the fire service. You can be an asset or you can be a dependent. So you got to figure out what it is that you want to be. I don't want a dependent in on my truck. I need an asset. I need you to be able to give back and, and be able to provide and do more than request help and do stuff. I'm okay with you requesting help, if you don't know, but you can't just expect it. You, you need to be out there and bettering yourself, taking classes, educating yourself. And uh, to, to touch on what you said, the chasing that bugle, that brass poisoning. And in like due time, you're going to get promoted. If, as long as you're, you're a stand-up person and, and you do what needs to be done, you'll get promoted. But don't chase it. Prepare yourself for it. But don't skip the step of being that new fireman, being that seasoned fireman. Because you know what? You're going to be a shitty officer if you're not a good fireman. I promise you that. You know what else you don't chase? A mentor. Teach my guys that. If you do good, a mentor will find you because we're always watching. I That's have it. a mentor, but I mentor other members. Absolutely. If you, do, if you do good, a mentor will find you because we're always watching. All right? But you don't go out there and find a mentor to do good. You can't put yeah. the horse – I mean, you can't put the carriage before the horse. Absolutely. My, uh, my, my statement, exactly what you guys are saying, but mine is a little bit shorter and a little bit simpler. I want a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. So when you have that mindset and you come in – I'll give you everything I know. It won't take long. I'll take about four or five minutes, maybe. But I'll I give you everything. Yeah, you need sit. Well, your head's bigger, so you know you got to. <laughs> so, but that's that's my take on it. Like, I'll give you everything I got. You take that and you run with it. And then, like you said, the promotions and all that that'll all fall in place when time is due. Absolutely. Hey, 
we're wrapping this up and awesome wow. had a blast i cannot thank you enough and uh i can speak for greg we we want to have you back on we want to we want to talk some more shop with you uh dive deeper in some in some tactics and stuff like that but uh honestly man we we can't thank you enough for coming on um we've been around you and you've been around us since about 2008 I've seen you grow. You've seen me grow. 100%. Greg, Greg's been the grumpy old man that's watched us both grow, so it works. I'm a sweetheart. That is not true. Well, guys, I had a blast. Um, I enjoyed it. I'm looking at the clock in the corner. I think we're an hour and 40 minutes in, and it felt like we've been talking 10 minutes. My battery's at 3% on this computer, but <laughs> I did not plug in. I felt hey. balls to the wall. But listen, I had a blast. I'd love to do this again. I have so much more stuff to talk about with you guys. This is just the tip of the iceberg. You guys are awesome. Congratulations on your show. Congratulations on the company. I couldn't be prouder or happier for you guys. I'd love to see good people do good, and God bless you both, man. You hey, too, healthy, man. Boys. Hey, you got anything to follow up with, Greg? Just that he's a beautiful man, and I've always said that, you know? Hey, true story. <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, real quick, want to give a shout-out to the sponsors that made this podcast work. Breachpoint USAR, the Can Man Radio Show. First do screen printing. They handle all of the NRC screen printing. They also own IDLH Apparel. Go check them out. Kong USA, all, all your rope needs. Nozman Leather Company, go check them out for all your, all your leather needs. With that said, podcast number two is done. We'll see you next week.